welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin from Continuum. I've noticed that all of my annoyingly healthy friends are using some kind of health tracker these days, and I have to admit I rolled my eyes at the idea until I tried a tracker and soon realized that I was getting nowhere near those desired 10,000 steps in a day. While I thought I was being active enough, it turned out that my assumptions didn't match reality whatsoever. I actually needed those metrics to help me understand how well I was doing. It turns out that machines can benefit from wearing Fitbits as well. Well, not literally Fitbits, but many pieces of sensitive equipment can have their performance affected by elements in the environment, temperature, moisture, that kind of thing. And in the medical space, such as a lab, your research and manufacturing outcomes can depend quite heavily on, well, the health of your equipment. Thankfully, we have folks like Sri Iyengar to the rescue. Shri is the CEO and founder of Elemental Machines, a company that uses a system of sensors to carefully monitor complex environments. He's previously founded a company, Misfit Wearables, that makes wearable devices, and another company, Agamatrix, that made a blood glucose monitoring device that connects to smartphones. So he knows a lot about the intersection of consumer products and healthcare devices. Shri sat down recently with Kevin Young, a senior vice president at Continuum, to chat more about the world of consumer health products and services and what companies looking to succeed in this space ought to keep in mind. Thank you for coming in today. Yep, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited to talk to you. We spoke last year. Mm -hmm. We we did collaborated together on an article and the um, on the convergence between consumer products and medical devices, mm -hmm. especially in the the connected world in the IoT space. And I'd love to talk to you further about that today. Sure. Sure. Sounds good. And before getting into that, maybe we can walk through a little bit of your background. Mm -hmm. You have a, a fascinating career, um, a really interesting journey. Yes. Some would say it's a bit of a random walk. <laughs> that's, um, but one of your first companies or the first company that you founded was mm -hmm. Agamatrix. Yep. And um, that created the, uh, the IBG Star, which... My understanding is it's the first FDA-approved glucose monitor mm -hmm. connects to an iPhone. Yep. And um, would love to hear more about how that idea was formed and, and uh, how, you, how you made that happen. Sure, sure. Um, well, it's funny that uh, um, we, were, we started the company, myself and my business partner, Sonny, who was actually my old uh, roommate in college, so we've known each other for a number of years. We... Um, we started making, well, Agamage was started in 2001, uh, and it was really a continuation of my PhD work in, in, in electrochemistry and, and glucose sensing. And um, the original idea for the company was to develop a, a signal processing noise cancellation technology that could make glucose meters more accurate without really having to invest a lot of capital in new materials, new enzymes, new chemistries, or new manufacturing processes. It's basically noise cancellation for, for this type of sensor. So we got the company off the ground. Um, we started making a lot of OEM white label products. In fact, we we make um, the Kroger brand of glucose meter, the CVS brand, the Target Pharmacy brand. Um, and, af and after a few years, we, we, we started seeing uh, several patterns emerge. And that was basically that... Um, um, no matter how well designed the product was, that uh, people weren't actually testing themselves and they weren't as compliant as the American Diabetes Association uh, recommended um, that, that they do. And one of the main reasons... Um, we assumed it was because of, of the pain of pricking your finger to, to get a drop of blood. And it turns out that what we realized was the, the number one reason why people don't test themselves as often is because they forget. 
And this is really for type 2 diabetes, uh, for folks with type 2 diabetes. Right. Uh, if you're type 1, obviously you're insulin dependent and you're testing yourself and, and dosing yourself multiple times a day. But for type 2, the number one reason was people just kind of forgot because it's not something that's an acute issue with them on a day-to-day basis. And then the turns out the number two reason uh, was even if they remembered, they f- would forget their testing supplies mm-hmm. because, again, it's not part of their lifestyle. And the number three reason is if they remember to test and they had their stuff with them is that they wouldn't know what to do with the number. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so I tested, I got a number, what do I do? There's no, and I don't take insulin, so what action do I take? And it turns out the number fourth reason was the pain. And so when we looked at all that, the top three reasons were all behavioral, nothing to do with technology. Right. And when the iPhone came out, um, we looked at each other and we said, wow, this could actually solve all three of those problems because... A, if you were to make a device that physically plugged into the bottom of the phone, the phone's always going to be with you. So A, you always have your supplies. And B, you can have an app that gives you alerts and, and reminders so you so you remembered it uh, to test yourself. And three, you can collect all the data. You can find the trends. You can share it with your loved ones and your caregivers. And the data becomes more relevant. So really, the iPhone um, helped um bring all those three factors um, to bear. And then that's that was the impetus for, for designing this product. Hmm. And it, it's, uh, it's super interesting to me because it started as a um, more a technology mm-hmm. solution, right? Because of your background yep. and, uh, and your partner's background on mm-hmm. the project, yep. you know, you, that, that's where it began. But then as you discovered the real, you know, that's, where the, the opportunity lied. Right, right. And, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's such a cliche to, to quote, uh, you know, Steve Jobs to say that technology needs to hide it, you know, be hidden. But that's, that's what we found. The, the, the major reasons why people were not compliant with their, with their medical, you know, therapies was all behavioral. Mm-hmm. And so we had to plug into people's existing behaviors. And again, it's something that uh, BJ Fogg um, advocates tremendously, which is don't try to change people's behaviors, fit into what they're currently doing. Right. And um, we had this, uh, we, we called something, we came up with this thing called a turnaround test. And the idea was, if you left home and you forgot something, would you turn around and go get <laughs> it? And for many things in life, you kind of wouldn't. You forget your sunglasses, meh, you wouldn't really go turn around. You, for, you forget your eyeglasses, then yeah, you probably would. Right. Um, and we went through this whole list of things. And and if you forgot your glucose meter, people generally didn't. They're like, ah, it's fine. I'll test it when I get home. And so it failed the turnaround test. Right. Yet, if you forgot your phone, people would turn around and go get it. So we just said, look, let's just piggyback on top of that. So it was it was as simple as a it was, it was simple as that. Yeah, simple. I'm sure. To yeah. get that to <laughs> That's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, so from there, um, you know, some might expect you would stay in um, the healthcare space mm-hmm. um, in developing products in that area, but you you took a little bit more of a consumer turn, yep. or quite a bit more of a consumer turn, um, with Misfit Wearables. Yep. And um, it, you know, I I'm a big fan. Uh, followed the company for you know fr- from the beginning. Yep. Um, can you talk? Similarly, about how sure. that uh, I'm really interested in the the people that came together to form yes. that and the origin of the company. Yeah, yeah, it was funny. Um, so, Misfit actually had three three founders: myself, my business partner Sunny, and then Mr. John Scully, who is well known from his uh, tenure at Pepsi and and Apple. Now, John, we had actually met semi socially because <clears throat> when we developed the the IBG star. It was actually codenamed the Nugget before we had a name for it. Um, we were looking for an OEM commercial partner, a white label partner. And so we met John um, 
because he was a chairman of a, of a medical device uh, company that was operating in the sleep apnea space. And there's a huge overlap between folks with type 2 diabetes and sleep right. apnea. And so long story short, uh, um, John's company was, was we, were, we were in talks uh, for him to be a commercial partner to us and take it to market, at least for, uh, for that um, for that vertical. Uh, now, at the 11th hour, um, Sanofi came in and um, made us an offer we couldn't refuse. And so, of course, we, we ended up doing the deal with Sanofi, and that's how the name IBG Star came about. And we turned around to John and we said, hey, um, it's really, I mean, it was amazing getting to know him and his wife, and we just got to know him over the course of a couple of months. And we explained that, you know, you know, sorry, Sanofi came in and made us a, a huge offer. <laughs> we, we have to take it. <laughs> and um, John was very gracious. He's like, he's like, first of all, guys, that is the absolute right thing to do. So he gave us some reassurance. And then he turned around and he said, well, listen, let me get this straight. You guys started this company. You've been there for 10 years. Um, and you guys really want to move in in the digital health space. And look, why don't you guys transition out and the three of us will do something. The company's going to be on a good trajectory with the Sanofi deal and all that. So, um, you know, if you stay in one industry for for too long, you're never going to escape. And then he gave us that story about Pepsi to, you know, Apple and all of that. Right. And he was kind of joking. He's like, guys, 10 years is, you know, you're almost you're, you're almost beyond help. So <laughs> so uh, so we, we kind of we looked at each other and we said, yeah, he's, he's kind of right. Um, so we transitioned out, um, and the three of us put in some initial capital, and we said, "Look, we wanted to do we want to do something in digital health because we got a taste for that when we did the IBG Star. We, we understood this world of apps and sharing data and ecosystems that you can that you can build. And you know, we we launched that product in 2010. So this was the very very early days of of, of digital health, and we just wanted to do more in that space. Now, the reason we went consumer was because when we were developing the IBG Star, um, because it was an FDA-regulated uh, product, um, iterating on a, on a UI or a design was not very fast. We had to go through very slow process documentation and you know dealing with the FDA. <clears throat> so what we, what we thought with Misfit is, let's do something in health and wellness where we can iterate really quickly without having the regulatory burden. Mm-hmm. And once we understand the UI and the user experience, we can then put a quality system together and then move that into um, into medical. So mm-hmm. the whole idea was let's let's bifurcate the work and say, let's do good UI and UX, but not make any medical claims. Right. And then once we understand what's going to catch on behaviorally, then move that back in, into medical. That was that was the idea. Oh, that's right. I, I didn't know that that was the uh, sort of the origin of the company to eventually a plan yeah. to eventually move into yeah more yeah. regulated space. Yeah, we really wanted to do more in, in the biometric space, but you know, there's a lot you could do that was unregulated. There's a lot right. in the health and wellness space. So hey, let's let's go do that first. Yeah, that was the idea. And then, as you know, we never actually moved back in. Right, exactly. Space, <laughs> it turns out that uh, you know the consumer uh, aspect and the and 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 design aspects of what we're doing ended up gaining a lot of traction. So we right. just kept investing in that direction. Yeah. I've, I've heard, I've always wanted to ask, I've heard uh, a little bit about the origin of the name. Mm-hmm. So, um, so first of all, um, we had, we had these weird links into Apple and that was not only with, with John, but also with the IBG star. Um, and we're just big Apple f- fanboys. And so, uh, misfit really comes from Steve jobs, uh, talking here's to the crazy ones. Here's to the misfits. Yeah. And we said, okay, well, well, we'll start with that, and it's memorable, and you know, it has a word "fit" in it. It right. was 
kind of cool. I like it. Like, if people don't like it, we'll change it later. But but yeah. it turns out that it actually it stuck and it created a, its own little brand. So yeah, abs- absolutely caught on. Yeah, I've heard rumors of that, but it's good to hear from yeah. the source that mm-hmm. that that is the uh, that's where it came from. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it just it also what's I mean one of the some of the main characteristics of the quality of the product is that it had a longer battery life, mm-hmm. um, and it was one of the first uh, products in the space that really focused on fashion. Yeah, which is um, you know close to my heart. Yep. Uh, just as I think about you know that convergence of medical consumer, there's still uh, you know, a lot of opportunity there, right? Yes. In that in that space. Oh, we had yeah, and this is something we directly learned from uh, building the IBG Star. Now, uh, before I jump into in, into this design aspect of Misfit, I got to take I got to go back a year or two. Um, when we were designing the IBG Star, we, we knew we had two big hurdles. We knew we had the FDA hurdle, uh, and we also knew we had the Apple hurdle, because Apple has to approve anything that plugs in, and and they have to approve the app. And so, uh, in fact, it was the very first medical device, not just the, not just the first glucose meter, the first medical device that Apple allowed to physically plug into the iPhone. Um, and so we we were a little concerned. So we had to design the product in such a way that the Apple decision makers would fall in love with it. Mm-hmm. So of course we 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 mimicked the Apple design language, and um, we actually got a very nice um, compliment by one of the folks there saying, "Wow, this." This looks like something we would have designed. That's and huge. That was huge. Yes, <laughs> it's enormous. Yeah. Wow. Um, so we were very happy about that. Um, but what happened is once we launched that product, we started getting um, we started getting letters from parents with with kids who are you know ten years old, twelve years old, eight years old, and it was like you know there's. A, a, a bunch of letters and emails that were saying, "Yes, this is great. Thank you very much, etc." You know, so th- that's all we, we we expected. That then we started getting a second type of letter, which we didn't expect, which was, you know, my son or daughter is no longer embarrassed to have diabetes hmm. because when you're like eight years old, you don't want to be different, right? And all of a sudden, they were the only kid in class with an iPhone. <laughs> that is cool. That is very cool. And we had this amazing display, like graphic um, display right. of like this lightning bolt going through red blood cells and all of this. Yeah. And um, that was that was something that was extraordinarily, um, you know, eye opening. Right. That something like good design can change psychology and change behavior. Right. So that's something we took to Misfit. We we understood that if we wanted people to use our product, we had to fit into them behaviorally, and. Coming out of diabetes and glucose, everyone talks about accuracy, 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 right? Well, it turns out that the 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 normal user and consumer, they don't really care about accuracy of the glucose meter. And the reason is they don't question it. The the healthcare professionals all knew it, but the end users like, well, they're all the same. They're all FDA clear, right? So what's the difference? So that aspect of it never resonated. Hmm. And but the behavioral aspects did, the design aspects did, even even in diabetes. So we brought that over to Misfit, and um, there were a couple of things we had to um, we we had to figure out. Is you know at the time there was Nike Fuel Band, um, Jawbone, and Fitbit, right. and they were all kind of getting off the ground, and we had to figure out what what our differentiating um, feature was, and very you know. Quite simply, our, our market research was involved um, one intern sitting in front of a laptop for two weeks and reading every negative review on Amazon for the competing products. And and we, we, we told her, look, just tell us what the top three complaints are. And the number one complaint, more than anything else, uh, was recharging. 
this was again, you know, 2011, so right. six years ago, everyone hated charging their their, their fitness tracker. Mm. And the number two complaint was it had to be waterproof. Not for swimming pools, but think washing machines. Because people would leave their Fitbits in the little little pocket, yeah, yeah, exactly. throw it in, and it's gone. And number three, it had to look good and not be confined to the wrist. That was predominantly from from females, from women who wouldn't would never wear something like that on their wrist with a dress. Like that was a common theme. So that those are the three the three things. And you know you can't go and raise money on a on a, on a for a company that says, hey, we're just going to make something really beautiful. Like you don't like VCs, Silicon Valley investors. They don't. Work. They don't invest in jewelry companies, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. So it was a it was a uh, necessary but not sufficient feature. So we needed to have good design, but we also needed to have good good technology internally. The functionality had to be there. So it was an and function, not an or function. Right. And that's something we learned from the medical world: is you need good science, but you also need good usability. That's great. So that kind of <laughs> leads us to where you are now, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you're with uh, Elemental Machines, mm-hmm. another company you founded. Yep. And um, you know you've talked about your past experiences, how they sort of influenced each other, and you know the the learnings from one led to uh, you founding these other companies. What uh, can you tell us a little bit first of all about what, your company now? Yep. What what you're uh, what you're offering and how sure. past experience led you there. Yes. So Elemental Machines is an IoT for science company. So what I mean by that is we make connected devices and connected sensors uh, that we help pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, material science companies, any science-based company that deals in chemistry and biology, we allow them to accelerate their research and their manufacturing processes. So instead of smart home products in the consumer world, think of us as building smart labs and smart factories. And um, the idea behind this is, uh, quite simply, um, everything I learned at Misfit applied to the problems I had at Agamatrix. <laughs> That's the simplest way to, uh, to describe it. Um, so when people uh, that I've met more recently, they, they look at what we're doing at Elemental, and they say, well, how did you come here from Misfit? It seems like such a huge, you know, because you're now selling temperature sensors to, to factories. Like, what does right. that have to do with Misfit? Well, I have to take them back to Agamatrix because one of the, the things at Agamatrix, um, one of our, our, our biggest um, competitive edges was we had extremely good manufacturing and that allowed us to have very low, uh, very low cost for our product. And we did that. Um, we had a contract manufacturer in the Far East and, you know, initially when you get things off the ground, there's always yield issues, things aren't working the way you want them to. So we overcame all that using combination of sensors and analytics. We put sensors everywhere. We, we took data from everything we possibly could. This is before Amazon, this is before AWS, before anything in the cloud. So all the data came to our servers and we built models. We did predictive analytics before the phrase was sexy. (laughs) And what happened was we could predict manufacturing issues two to three months in advance so we could fix them before they became financial issues. And we had a very specific uh, time frame because um, uh, when, and the thing that we were manufacturing were glucose strips, that, you know, the single-use glucose strips. And the, those, were, those were chemistry-based products. There were screen-printed electrodes. There was enzymes and reagents and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it would be three weeks between when they would be produced in the Far East to when we would be testing them here. And if we found something today that, that pointed to a screw up in manufacturing, there was three weeks of, of 
product that we may have to throw out. And when you're making a couple of million per day, that's that's a couple of million dollars at risk. Right. So we basically had to figure out how to predict a few months into the future. So anyway, so we did that. Um, and, and it worked, and we got our yields up to virtually 100%. And it was, it was all good. It was just basically good good engineering work. So then we go to Misfit. And after a couple of years, I turned around to Sonny, and I said, you know, we've got, you know, we, we had about a, about a million people using our device around around the world. And I said, and I said, Sonny, you know, yeah, I, I totally get it. We, we, make, we make fitness trackers. I totally get that. But you realize we've also kind of accidentally created a globally distributed sensor network. <laughs> and that was sort of like the aha moment that mm. it was easier for me to get data from a million distributed sensors around the planet than it was for me to get data from a handful of sensors in one building in our contract manufacturer. Mm. And only about five years had, had passed between those two experiences. And in the case of Misfit, the sensor was um, an accelerometer, just a motion sensor. But when I when I looked at uh, when I looked at what we had done, we'd used consumer uh, we, we'd used technology uh, that people use to build consumer products and consumer apps, where you don't build you know eighty percent of the of the communication stack. You use third party APIs. You right. you put it on Amazon and you use a, a you know, bunch of uh, data handling uh, infrastructure that you don't have to build, and that allows us to rapidly scale distributed sensor networks. So instead of so instead of using that just to count how many steps you've taken, I said, well, there's an entire B2B enterprise opportunity here that that uh, I, I wish I had products like this, but instead of a motion sensor, I wish it was a temperature sensor, a humidity sensor, a light sensor, you know, oxygen sensor, CO2 sensor, all of the sensors that are required for chemistry and biology. Gee, I wish I had those sensors with this infrastructure. Yeah. So that was sort of the aha moment to say, let's uh, let's do it. And it grew out of the necessity that you found yeah. with Agamatrix. Yes, yeah, right? it, it was it was it was a very very acute problem. And then I started socializing that with a bunch of my folks, mm-hmm. a bunch of my friends in the industry, and everybody had a story to tell. And and it went yeah. like for us in particular, for me, I remember there's one episode where um, we were making a a glucose reagent. It was a chemistry thing, and it took us about six months to figure out why this formulation was unstable. And it turned out that the instability pattern was highly correlated with the humidity the day that the, the chem, the, all the chemicals were mixed together. Mm. And once you figured it out, fixing it was a matter of minutes because, yeah, great, do it in the room over there. That's, that's yeah. better controlled. But six months to debug the problem, and then that became sort of like the theme, is that you now have, you in the world of, chemistry, biology, very broadly speaking, it could be pharma, it could be material science, it could be food tech, whatever it is. Um, you, you run through physical processes, you run through physical protocol. And it can take you months to figure out what went wrong. And the same the same thing doesn't happen when you run through virtual protocols in computer science. Right. When you write software, when something goes wrong, you have tools like debuggers to, to, to find what went wrong and you can fix it. When you run through a physical process, whether it's a, a recipe for chocolate cake or whether it's a protocol for creating the, the next version of insulin, there's no debugger for physical processes. Mm. And that's kind of what we're doing with elemental machines is, you know, step one is measure everything. Right. Once you've measured everything, quote, um, 
then you can go back and do the analytics to find where the problems are. So step one is putting sensors everywhere to measure things. And it's a very simple concept that when you deal with chemistry, I mean, if you think back to high school chemistry, then you know temperature, light, and humidity are three things that greatly affect how yeah. chemistry works. So right. <laughs> you add on top of that oxygen and CO2, you've got most of biology covered. So it's not rocket science, mm-hmm. but how do you do plug-and-play deployable sensors and uh, very you know very effectively and then you need to figure out a way to crunch all that data in a very efficient manner on the back end. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're able to provide sort of a dashboard of uh, information for the companies that, that work with you to mm-hmm. have better understanding. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. There's there's a whole uh, there's a whole spectrum of, of of analytics that that we provide. So on the simple end. It's things like, well, when something goes out of range, send an alert so a human can come in and take a look at it. That's kind of like table stakes. If you don't have that, you can't even enter into this into this world. Mm-hmm. Then at the higher end, um, we actually have tools that allow us to very rapidly spin up models um, on the based on the physical world. So if you got a, if you got a production line and you're manufacturing something, we can actually put a bunch of sensors on all the critical critical points. Take take the protocol or procedure, virtualize that. And so, as somebody runs that fact, uh, runs that assembly line over and over and over again, our system learns where the critical uh, variables are, and then yeah. alerts them, and basically guides our customers to say, okay, step number fourteen is is you know the variability there is what's causing uh, quality problems in your product. Right. That's oh, really interesting, and I can imagine, or maybe you're already. Um, doing this uh tailored or customized solutions for you know for certain needs um i'm sure there are kind of one size fits all solutions too Mm -hmm. but i can just kind of picture the that natural movement toward more customized ideas yeah um there's always been this uh this uh holy grail in 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 the world that we we all occupy uh called mass customization (laughs) um and that's becoming easier with cloud-based technologies because what we found is that we'll go in and work with a particular client, and maybe two thirds of what we build is reusable to the next client and the sure. next client. And over time, our what, what we'll end up building a, a huge set of basically Legos that we can rapidly configure and assemble. Now, the ultimate goal is to build this toolbox so the customer themselves can can configure their own solutions. But un, until we really understand what's needed, um, you know, we're we're building these lego building block so to speak yeah no, that's that's great um so thank you that's a great walk through um your career and uh and the different companies that you founded i want to transition a bit mm-hmm. into um the conversation that we've been having yep. around uh something that's very close to my uh my heart of the convergence of consumer products yep. and, uh, and medical devices mm-hmm. and you're a perfect person to talk to about this because you've you've played in you're just yep. it's a rare situation that you've been uh, you've founded companies in both worlds and uh and now in the b2b space I, I, so, I'm, I'm, it's rare to find somebody who's still alive and, <laughs> you've and, st- and standing up after <laughs> right, <that>. exactly <laughs> you've made it this far yeah. um so you know, I'd be interested in talking about um, you know this space of of the convergence. Um, you know, there's been there's been a lot of talk about yeah. this this area. Um, you know, some have said that it hasn't uh, grown at the the pace that some would expect, and mm-hmm. you know, we we spoke yeah. about this before. Yeah. Um, but I'd I'd love to hear uh, your your thoughts on that. About uh, first of all, I guess whether you 
you would have guessed five years ago that this category of consumer health mm -hmm. would have grown at a faster pace. Um, and just some of the main barriers that you've seen through your experience that might be holding it back. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's growing. It's, it's actually growing faster than I expected mm. it would. So I, I, I take the other side because having come sure. out of, uh, out of a regulated world, um, I just, I remember how conservative, um, uh, how risk averse, uh, some of the regulated bodies are, and it's uh, and and I can't fault them for it because the mandate is more to keep people safe than anything else. And and when you do that, you have a natural bias towards minimizing downside as opposed to maximizing upside. And you you can have this exact same uh, philosophy when it comes to let's say playing the stock market. You you know. Depending on the kind of stocks you pick, you can maximize upside, but that comes at a risk of, of downside as well. If you play it very conservatively, then yeah, you may not lose a lot of money, but you may not gain as much either. And so it's just a matter of, of how the systems have been set up mm -hmm. um, in the regulated bodies. And, and minimizing downside is stressed more than maximizing the upside. Now, given that as a backdrop, um, what, I've, uh, what I've been really pleased to see is that... Uh, the, the government has um, embraced mm -hmm. uh, change. That they've realized that that if 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 they don't get ahead of the curve on this, then the at least you know at least in the U.S. the, the American public we're not going to have the new technologies right. uh, that the rest of the world may have. It's it's a, it's commonly known that once you get a medical device uh, to a point of uh, commercialization, that you take it to Europe first right. because you can get the CE market self declared. Exactly. Um, and then you wait for FDA clearance. So, you know, that that's well recognized. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, for me, w w what, I, what I've um, what I've realized is that the the citizen scientists and the citizen, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, they're pushing these things forward. Mm -hmm. And to the point where the FDA has actually brought in um, a gentleman named Bakul Patel. And he, I think he, I remember he joined maybe six, seven eight years ago, he was, he was an industry guy. He came out of the semiconductor world and they brought him in to say, Hey, listen, we need you to figure out how we can interface with industry. And he's done a phenomenal job kind of, um, I, w I won't say lowering the barriers, but making the, the barriers more clarified. Mm -hmm. The worst thing that, that, that we faced back in the day was we didn't know what the regulations were. Right. If you knew what they were, you could build towards it. But when you didn't know what it was, it, 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 you were kind of a deer caught in headlights. So there's some movements along those lines that the FDA is doing. It just, which I give them both, uh, you know, I give them thumb, um, thumbs up for that. Yeah, and it's um, <clears throat> what I've one of the things I've noticed in the the types of companies, the clients that we work with, there's um, you know, there is this sort of uh, dichotomy in that industry. You know, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a, the regulatory side yep. uh, for sure, and um, and then it's just they're obviously very different worlds. You know, you talked about sort of design and mm -hmm. you know the fashion yep. side of it. Yep. Um, and so we've we've just watched these worlds try to understand each other. And um, there's there's the sort of an appetite for innovation overall, almost mm -hmm. culturally. And I don't want to you know overgeneralize different yep. company cultures, but there is a um, I think more of a, an interest or an understanding on the consumer side mm -hmm. in in really pushing uh, to innovate. Trying new things, um, and and deeply understanding consumer need, which yeah. you've talked about, yeah, and and letting that drive versus letting you know perhaps a new technology yes uh, drive yeah. that. So it's 
it's it's interesting, especially as we watch someone on the consumer side try to enter yeah. medical, uh, or vice versa. Just really these being foreign worlds, yeah, and, and trying to watch them get along. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I, I think you and I have chatted before about the concept of building a better mousetrap, and um, honestly, that's that's been my playbook for for all my companies <laughs> is, is to is to take something, uh, take an existing market and fill an unmet need in an existing market. And what I mean by that, and that this is very, very true for for medical and, and healthcare startups, is that it's very difficult to come up with an with a brand new innovation because the infrastructure to to bring that to market isn't there. Right. So unless you're willing to invest a lot of time and money educating the market, educating the regulators and creating those those you know payment pathways, whether it's reimbursement or 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 or, or whatever um, the the best thing to do, um, at least to um, get a a new company or a new technology into the market, is to look at what's being done current currently. Look at the current practice of medicine. Look at the current practice of therapy and and and, and however this market is is um, is being serviced, mm-hmm. and build products and tools that either lower the cost of delivering that same service, or allow the, the provider, the folks who are providing that service to reach a larger audience for less less cost. So I'm a big believer in in using software and hardware and, and new products to lower the cost of delivering an existing service. Mm-hmm. That service can be a, 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 um, a counseling service, you know, it can be coaching or in, in physician interaction, or it could be through a device. I mean, right. if you have a sleep apnea machine, it's providing a service, but make a better machine, better mm-hmm. one that drastically lowers the cost. And the reason I say that is, um, if you're on the outside looking in, there's a lot of unknown unknowns. And the only way to change some of those into known unknowns is to just jump in and and you know and, and actually be part of that of that community. Mm-hmm. And to do that successfully, you have to have a business. You have to, or else you can't. You can't keep raising money forever and, and, and hoping you'll survive. So when you have established regulations, when you have established distribution channels, and you have established uh, reimbursement channels, again, speaking more on the medical side, then use those as your strengths and your pillars and look at uh, and just play within those guidelines. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, you, what you'll find is there's going to be opportunities to build a better mousetrap, to build a service or a product that does very similar, uh, to, uh, to provides a, a, a service that's very similar to what's out there. Mm-hmm. But if you can innovate on the delivery side, you can lower the cost. Right. And if you can lower the cost, you can gain market share. Mm-hmm. Once you gain market share, you can get in, you can play, and then you can really learn what some of the more uh, innovative opportunities could be. But from the outside, it's, it's really hard to do, really risky to do. Yeah. And I definitely see that path with Ecomatrix, with yep. Misfit. With Elemental Machines, mm-hmm. you're you're going a little bit beyond that, I think, right? Because there wasn't a an existing solution to that problem. You you discovered that there, so, problem in a way, right? Yeah, so so there there are existing solutions. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, kind of old school. Good. <laughs> <laughs> They're old school. You know. Um you know, when you when you look at sensors That's for yeah. factories, I mean you don't you know, you don't really think of cutting edge. Uh, right. So they exist. So the so at least for our customers, the problem exists exists today. Yeah. And what we're saying is, listen, don't do it the old school way. We're going to bring it to you in more cloud connected, seamless seamless way. So um, the problem does exist, 
uh, and it is being serviced, but we think not not too well by the others, by the incumbents. So yeah. we're going to try and disrupt that. Yeah, solutions were out there, but they were just very, um, compared to what you're doing, I mean, they're certainly very- Very cumbersome. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so just to, just want to ask mm-hmm. a few more questions. And uh, you know, I'm really curious, given all of the context of the experiences that you've had, you know, you've been in the medical space and the mm-hmm. consumer, now the B2B space. Um, I'm sure each one faced uh, very unique challenges and probably maybe <laughs> difficult yes, to <yeah>. compare. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious of those. What are you um, looking at those areas? I mean, what do you see as some of the main, the, the ones that were the most challenging, the categories that were the most difficult to work in? Yeah, it's funny. Um, I, know, I know we've talked about this before. And and one of the things, I don't, I don't remember what I said last time, but but I think I have a more refined answer now, which is um, what, what I found is that it, it's hard to say, you know, is B2B harder or B2C harder? Mm-hmm. It really depends on who you are as a person. And mm-hmm. I saw this very clearly between me and my partner, Sonny. So he and I are night and day different. I mean, like I'm a night owl. He wakes up at 6 a.m. I'm vegetarian. He will eat meat, raw meat off the back of a cow. Um <laughs> He doesn't drink any alcohol, and I love my red wine. So, so you name it, we're completely you know yin and yang. Right. And the same way, he's very product market uh, design oriented, mm-hmm. and I am very back office infrastructure oriented. And that meant that we we have been able to work very well together. So when I look at B two B or B two C, um, it really was well, whose strengths did it play to? Mm-hmm. So Agimatrix really played to my strengths because it was an infrastructure play. Right. It was all about the technology inside. It was about the manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. When we look at Misfit, it was all about the design, the market, and 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 the, uh, the productization, mm-hmm. and it was very forward facing. So um, my experiences at Misfit taught me one thing, which was I'm not really that great of a B two C guy, <laughs> <laughs> and and the reason for that. Um, is it's all based on the personality. So Sonny loved it. He was he you know he was he was all over it. That 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 that, that was his world. Right. Um, and in a B two C company, of, oftentimes uh, you can have fifty to eighty percent of your revenue in Q four in the holiday season. Right. And if you miss that that product launch, then you're you're. You're kind of screwed. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yes. And so, uh, but if you hit it and you hit it well, you can do really well at it. And so, but if you think about how do you manage a business where, you know, half to 80% of your revenue comes in one quarter. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you can get your head around that and if you can understand, um, if you can understand the nuances and pick up the the keys in consumer in the consumer market, then then it's great. And Sonny has his amazing intuition for consumer psychology. And mm-hmm. I've known that for many, many years, mainly because he's he always been an early adopter of new technologies. So you know, I used to joke with him. Um, he'd have he'd all these like things on his belt. I'm like, when it was, you, you know, it's Batman and his utility belt. He'd have all these gadgets like strapped to himself. And, and, uh, but what I realized about him was he had such a good intuition about consumer psychology. Mm-hmm. And to him, that was natural. For him, looking at manufacturing and back office was wasn't his sweet spot. Whereas it was for me. For me, I could look at look at a, a, a you know an assembly line and say, okay, I, I know what's going wrong with this. It was that, that was something that just was very innate, and, it, and I had intuition about that. Mm-hmm. So um, to talk about B to B or B to C, it really depends on what kind of a person you are. And right. for me, I find B to B to be um, quite 
yeah, that's a double. <laughs> yeah. I, like that. yes. uh, I, I find the B2B world to be very, um, uh, very intuitive. Right. Uh, whereas the B2C world, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a consumer mm-hmm. in the traditional sense. So I find it very hard to gain intuition in that space. Yeah. That it, it makes perfect sense. And it aligns with, uh, who you are, where your passions are, mm-hmm. where your where your uh, sort of natural wiring is. Yep. So, you know, again, given your um, overall experience, let's say I'm um, an entrepreneur. I'm interested in in getting into the consumer health space. Mm-hmm. Uh, just given the the world of connected devices, of IoT, I'm just curious what sort of what advice would you give to someone who's who's thinking about entering. Um, Entering the space, you know, how do they spot an opportunity? Yeah. So one of the th- one of the best uh, best ways to spot an opportunity is to solve a problem that you've had yourself. Mm-hmm. That I hear that over and over and over again, and it's um, certainly with elemental machines, it, it was true in in, uh, in my case. Sure. It wasn't so much true in Nagamatrix or or Misfit, um, but for most of the really good entrepreneurs that I've seen, they've all said, "I had this problem, so I solved it." And if I had it, somebody else probably does too. So if you start with, this is a problem I have, and you socialize that, then you'll find out you know, how to refine that. And the, and you get enough data points, and you see that there's there's a trend that, that's forming. So the number one advice I'd say is solve a problem that you have. Or you know solve a problem that somebody you know has. Solve mm-hmm. an actual problem that somebody has articulated. And um, John, uh, uh, John Scully used to advise us, he said, if you can articulate the problem well enough, the solution is is obvious. So if the solution isn't obvious, then you haven't articulated the problem well enough. So if you can do that, then then, then I think that's a great starting point. Yeah. And it's a, a nice um, reminder to you know avoid the trap of the technology push, yeah. of letting the technology really, because it's awfully tempting, it, right? Yeah. Especially with what's happening in the world today yeah. and how fast technology is moving yep. to, to uh, you know, jump to that next opportunity at, through a technology push versus the human need side. Yeah, it's funny. It's because oftentimes new technologies are the sexy, exciting things and solving problems is kind of boring. I mean, you look at that and you say, well, I have to solve that. I mean, that's, you know, it, whatever it is, solving an existing problem um, is never it's generally not as exciting as working on a new technology. Right. But if you solve an existing problem, it gets a foot in the door, you can build a business, and then you can start investing in the new, sexy, exciting things that are that there's swirling around. That's great. Well, I just wanted to close by uh, asking what is my final question, mm-hmm. I promise. Um, just overall, your thoughts on where the world of connectivity, the Internet of Things, um, industries that you see uh, leading or, or perhaps yeah. <laughs> falling behind. <laughs> Just where, whatever, sort of an open question on where you see things heading in, around yeah. the IoT space. Well, it's funny. Um you know, IoT has been around for decades. It's just called different things. It was right. machine to machine back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's really changed now is the ease of use for spinning up uh, a device and having it connected, and uh, you know, basically having everything hosted in the cloud. And what what that's done is it's lowered the barrier for for people to come up with new products, new solutions, and and, and new innovations. Now, uh, having kind of spent many many years in the, in the med tech world, um, I look at the pharma industry and I say. You know, there's a lot we can do to help pharma accelerate what they're doing. Um, 
you know, the traditional pharma method was, you know, invent a molecule, um, show that it, it, it helps in some disease state, and then market the hell out of it. And that's that's worked for many, many years. Yeah. But in the last couple of years, you've seen this, uh, this trend or this phrase kind of coming up saying, you know, beyond the pill. And um, what that means is that the, 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 the therapy itself is no longer really as, is no longer the single most important thing that, that uh, a patient can, uh, can rely on. Because it's been shown that behavioral aspects can have a, a tremendous impact on how a therapy works. Right. So the beyond the pill uh, movement um, is, is kind of augmenting um, therapies with digital tools. Mm-hmm. So it can be therapy sessions. It can be apps that tell you to, re- to remind you to do X, Y, and Z. There was a study years ago that um, said, well, if you just put a, put a weight scale in the bathroom and don't tell the person to even use it, after a couple of months, they lose weight because it's, it becomes a habit. They look at it and they're like, they get reminded. There's a huge push towards this beyond the pill thing. And um, I think recently at the MM&M uh, conference in New York, um, one of my friends, Gautam Galati, was given the keynote. And um, uh, there was something in there that said, you know, uh, he was saying the pharma ha- has just had its oh moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, kind of expounding on that, uh, I think pharma is realizing that they need to embrace mm. new technologies. And it doesn't, it's not in their DNA to do that. Because, again, they've come from this world where you minimize the downside risk at the cost of the upside risk and also uh, the upside gain and when you want to invest in a new unproven technology that's their 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 risk assessment <laughs> systems aren't set up to do that um, but those who do start moving in that direction are going to gain are, are going to be the winners and they've woken up to it and again that's why i'm sure you guys are getting a lot of uh, um you know, inquiries from from the farmer world to say, you know, help us. And what I would say is the best um, the best pharma companies are the ones who kind of know a direction and they come to you for help, as opposed to saying, you know, uh, help, we're lost, bail us out. Right. And yeah. and so I think the, the thing that I would say about um, IoT is it can help. IoT is not a mysterious thing. It is all it, all it is is you now can get granular data. Uh, at a much higher resolution, uh, both in space and time, than you ever could before. And that could be data from smart devices in the home to see how folks are uh, responding to a therapy. It could be smart devices in a factory to make sure that whatever you're manufacturing uh, is done in accordance so you don't have to have a recall down the road. So IoT is nothing more than a low-cost way to get highly granular data. What you do with that data is, is kind of up to you guys. I mean, not you, but them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, you know, with the issues around adherence and compliance mm-hmm. and, um, and just how difficult, you've, you've talked about this today, how difficult behavior change yep. is, uh, you know, just the opportunity for devices to communicate with each other, to have these multiple kind of touch points or rem- rem- not just reminders, but encourage um, people to use their medication mm-hmm. and and look at it more holistically it just it's it's exciting for me because it you can just imagine the potential for you know having yeah. a, a greater connected experience around uh, in pharma well well i mean you you've hit the nail on the head because um, once people have that information and data it becomes relevant mm-hmm. i mean we had this saying at misfit that um, it doesn't matter how accurate uh, the, the the accuracy of your step count w- w- wasn't the thing we were solving for it was wearability because if somebody doesn't use your product, you get zero data. Yeah. 
I'd rather get, you know, I'd rather get more complete data that's less accurate than highly accurate data and I have and having zero data points exactly. <laughs> because no one uses it. Yeah. So if you make it a relevant if you make it a relevant experience mm-hmm. to their their lives, people are going to start getting into habits. And once they get into a habit, that's when you start changing behaviors. Exactly. Have it fit into their lives yes. first or yep. or the, the data is meaningless or, the, or you won't get any data. Exactly. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time today. This was, uh, as always, when I speak with you, uh, it's a fascinating conversation. I always learn, uh, I learn a lot. So um, thank you. Really, yeah. really appreciate you yeah, well, having th- this th- conversation. Today. Yeah. Thanks very much for having me. Enjoyed it. The Resonance Test Podcast is where we seek out people who are consistently able to go from inspiration and cool ideas to fully implementing them. Innovation in this form can be found in all sorts of fields, from health and tech to food and the workplace, and we love hearing how different people go about doing this repeatedly. Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, it's not really innovative until it exists. If you want to learn more about Continuum and the work we do, go to continuuminnovation.com. Thanks to Kevin and Shree for their great conversation today. Many thanks to Kip, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Numerous gratitudes to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his masterminding behind the scenes. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Thank you.